Welcome to 2819. I'm Sandra Dimez. And I'm Daniel Almaguer. And today's theme, we're going to be talking about are humans made in God's image? That's right. In everyday apologetics, biochemist Fuzzle Rana is going to react to Jurassic Park. In case you're wondering what that has to do with being made in God's image, we're actually taking a little break from that theme because the viewers, you all commented Fuzzasaurus on YouTube. We had enough people comment and that triggered us yes, to get Fuzz Rana to react to a film he's never seen. So he did kind of uh, yes. get exposed to that movie finally. He finally did. We yeah. sat him down, we forced, <laughs> we held his eyes open yep. and said, watch Jurassic Park <laughs> and tell us what you think. And he was like, it's majestic. No, you'll have to watch that to <laughs> see to find out. his response. That's right. <laughs> also, we have in Science Faith Connection, Jeff Swerenko is going to be chatting with philosopher theologian Ken Samples on the topic, why can humans do science? First up will be Culture Talk. Sandra's going to be interviewing Fuzz Rana on modern humans and the birth of culture. So let's go ahead and check it out. Now it's time for Culture Talk, where we talk about culturally relevant topics that you can use to start conversations about your faith. And I'm joined today with Dr. Fuzzle Rana. Thank you for joining us. Sandra, thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about modern humans and the birth of culture. So before we dive in, can you explain what we mean when we're talking about culture? Yeah, well, for, for an anthropologist, what culture means is really like the sum total of collective activities mm -hmm. that uh, a hominin or that modern humans were engaged in. And this would include the types of artifacts that they would produce and what those artifacts tell the anthropologist about, the, about modern humans' lifestyles. Right. So when we talk about some of these artifacts, are some of those artifacts like musical instruments, artwork? Yeah, well, one of the, the things that is uh, really exciting to anthropologists is that with the, the appearance of anatomically and behaviorally modern humans, mm -hmm. we see really for the first time the expression of art and music. Mm -hmm. And many people believe that this is uh, reflecting modern humans' capacity for symbolism to mm. represent the world symbolically. And many times when we think about symbolism, we think about language, yeah. but also music and art are symbolic expressions. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about things like um, symbolism, art, music, where do we start to see that in, in the fossil record? At, like how many years ago do we yeah. see that? Well, we, it seems as if by and large we see the appearance of those types of activities associated uh, very close to the time that anatomically and behaviorally modern humans appear. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be unique to anatomically uh, and behaviorally modern humans. There's some claims that maybe Neanderthals engaged in art and music, but those claims are really suspect and are highly uh, disputed. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and so you're looking at symbolic artifacts going back as far as perhaps 100 to 130,000 mm -hmm. years ago. And is that when, like the, the consensus is that modern humans came onto the scene is about 120, 100,000 years ago? Yeah, that's what it seems to be. Mm -hmm. That's when you see the unique uh, anatomical features of, of modern humans appear in the fossil record really for the first time. So when you say anatomically modern humans, like are those homo sapiens or what are those? Yeah, homo sapiens, sapiens mm -hmm. uh, technically. So twice, yeah. sapiens twice, yeah. um, just so for our viewers and listeners so that they understand kind of the terminology. So about 120, 100,000 years ago, we start to see mm -hmm. this development of culture. Was there some sort of 
um, gradual development of this culture or was it a sudden appearance? Uh, for all intents and purposes, it looks as if it appears really suddenly, mm. uh, in, in a sense, virtually out of nowhere. Yeah. And so it, it is not only, again, unique to modern humans, but again, appears uh, almost, again, without any kind of real uh, evolutionary history leading up to the appearance of these kinds of capabilities. Mm -hmm. When you say evolutionary kind of development, um, what would we expect from an evolutionary perspective, a sudden appearance or some sort of gradual development of that? You would most likely expect to see gradual mm -hmm. emergence of these yeah. capabilities where there would be some kind of evidence for proto art or proto music mm -hmm. you know that would precede the appearance of of, of you know art or expression musical expression but we don't see that we just see uh, again the sudden appearance yeah. Yeah. so how is that sudden appearance explained from a naturalistic perspective like the best argument for yeah. that um, the the arguments that I've seen uh, have been primarily, some type of genetic change or, or combination of genetic changes mm -hmm. that suddenly introduce that capability into modern humans. Uh, but it's really, at this point, difficult to know what that single mutation would be that would suddenly you know, alter you know, the, the capacity of, of humans to have that, that capability. Mm -hmm. So if this sudden birth of culture is in line with the appearance of modern humans, then, and it's it seems like it's troubling to kind of explain that from a strictly naturalistic perspective, then how would we explain it from a biblical creation perspective? Yeah. Well, I see the, the capacity to produce art and music, our capacity mm -hmm. as humans to uh, express ourselves symbolically as really a manifestation of the image of God. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we see that uniquely in humans it aligns with what the biblical text says, that human beings uniquely bear God's image. And if indeed a creator uh, has stepped in and, and has created human beings in his image, I would expect that that capability would show up out of nowhere mm -hmm. and would appear suddenly and, again, would appear in uniquely with those uh, creatures that would be image bearers. So then this development of culture, this ability to engage in language and show symbolic thought, that is as a result of God stepping in and creating humans as a unique creature. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be my view, yes. Right. Well, thank you so much for that. I think um, I, I'm always interested whenever we could talk about music and, and art um, to really have that conversation with you because I know that a lot of people are really creatives and they like yeah. to hear that there is kind of a reason behind our passion yeah. um, for art and yeah. for creating. So thank you so much for that. So if viewers want to learn more about this topic, where would you point them to? Um, the, the book, Who Was Adam, would be a great place to go. Yeah. Also, my blog, The Cell's Design, has a, a number of articles I've written about yeah. you know when does art appear yeah. you know and when does musical ability appear so just for fun I want to know like maybe who your favorite artist is you know uh, I probably uh, would I, I, I want to one day be able to visit firsthand the, the uh, caves in Europe oh. in France and Germany and Spain where the 
the artwork is, you know, there that's 30, 40,000 years oh, old. Wow. So those early artists are my favorite artists. The, the, nice. The, the humans <laughs> the, that were making that cave art. The unnamed artists. Yeah. I appreciate it. It's so hipster. <laughs> Thank you for that, Fuzz. So if you want to learn more on this topic, go to reasons.org and search for Fuzzle Rana's blog, The Sal's Design. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a a Christian apologist, and I work for the organization called Reasons to Believe. And a few years ago, I, I wrote a book called Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth. Uh, because I wrote this book, uh, people oftentimes will ask me about the Jurassic Park and the Jurassic World movies, and particularly, you know, are these scientifically accurate? Is this something that we could really accomplish? And the fact of the matter is, I've never watched any of the Jurassic Park or the Jurassic World movies. And, you know, and, and I can understand the appeal that people enjoy watching uh, dinosaurs terrorize people. Whoa! And there's a, a bit of an, a romantic uh, aspect to the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies, I'm sure, because a lot of people would imagine and wonder what it would be like to be able to actually see dinosaurs in real life. There's a dinosaur. So I get it, but watching dinosaurs eat people just isn't my cup of tea. I must be scared of I didn't say I was scared. I didn't say you were scared. I know. Uh, uh, Brian and Sandra, the hosts of uh, the, our TV show, 2819, had a challenge uh, where they mentioned to the viewers that I had never seen any of the Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movies. If 50 people commented, Fuzzasaurus, that I would actually watch a Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movie and offer my running commentary on it. And so that's what we're doing today. Hopefully we'll have a good time. And this is a fun scene that I think does a great job of capturing just the, the uh, astonishment and the marvel of seeing a, a, a real live dinosaur for the first time. So now one thing that um, I've heard uh, paleontologists comment on about is the sound that the dinosaurs make. So this brontosaurus is making a roaring sound. Uh, most people uh, that are paleontologists think that dinosaurs would actually sound much more like birds screeching. And that roar is, is typical of what mammals would make, not but again, bird, the sound that birds would make. And so again, because of that bird-dinosaur connection, people think that dinosaurs would have sound more like, again, screeching birds. We use the complete DNA of a frog to fill in the holes and complete the code. <laughs> the fact of the matter is the approach that the Jurassic Park scientists are taking would, would never work. First of all, uh, the insect or the, the mosquito that would be preserved in the amber would probably be preserved, although it probably would undergo some kind of chemical alteration. But the contents of the mosquito, including the blood that it presumably sucked from a dinosaur, would not be preserved. It would undergo uh, degradation uh, over, uh, over 70 million years. And if any kind of uh, soft tissue materials would have remained behind, they would be trace amounts of materials that would have undergone significant uh, diagenesis, would have undergone significant chemical alteration. So the likelihood of getting any kind of blood out of that kind of sample is essentially impossible 
let alone recovering DNA. It's unlikely DNA would survive for 70 million years, although recently Mary Schweitzer claims to have discovered fragments, very small fragments of DNA in, in dinosaur remains that are about 70 million years ago. So even if they were able to recover trace amounts of DNA, it wouldn't be anywhere near an intact genome. It would just simply be uh, DNA fragments that, again, have probably undergone significant chemical alteration. Let's say you could then sequence some of that DNA. It probably would be ill-advised to use a frog genome to fill in the gaps. Uh, you would most likely want to actually use uh, genomes from an avian source, uh, most likely a, a chicken genome or something like that uh, to fill in the gaps because uh, today most uh, biologists believe that actually uh, birds are uh, dinosaurs, uh, that, that when they look at dinosaurs, they classify them as non-avian and avian dinosaurs. And um, the, the uh, avian dinosaurs, from an evolutionary perspective, would have given rise to birds today. Now, in all fairness, uh, what Michael Crichton has done, though, is really very good science fiction writing because he has, he has uh, used enough science to make what the Jurassic Park scientists accomplished seem to be scientifically plausible. He, he really, uh, again, uh, deviates really only a little bit from established science uh, to create kind of the science fiction scenario. So it's really very good science fiction writing that he's engaged in. The bread raptors. Yeah, velociraptors actually figure pretty prominently, as I understand it, in Jurassic Park. And the way they're depicted is actually much larger than they would have been in real life. Most velociraptors would have been about the size of a turkey, and they would have been feathered as well. A turkey, huh? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, what's interesting about this particular scene, too, is, is the, the perspective of, of Dr. Ian Malcolm, who uh, essentially is, is parroting the evolutionary mantra that that life is able to evolve, that life is able to find a way, so to speak, through the evolutionary process. But if all of the, the dinosaurs are females, and there is actually no way they can reproduce, and actually reproduction is critical uh, to, the, to the, the way people envision the evolutionary process taking place, uh, is that organisms have to reproduce, and it's essentially the heritable genetic variations that if, if the, that are critical, to the evolutionary process. But if these dinosaurs can't reproduce, then there's absolutely no way that evolutionary processes are going to somehow cause them to break free of the, of the controls that the, the Jurassic Park scientists put in place. Keep absolutely still. This vision is based on movement. Th this idea of, of keeping absolutely still to avoid being seen by the T-Rex um, most paleontologists believe that, that dinosaurs, including T. rex, would have had very good vision that would have been able to see um, the people, whether they were standing still or whether they were moving or running around. Uh, and on top of that, T. rex had an incredible sense of smell, according to paleontologists, that would have allowed the, the, the animal to be able to detect <laughs> the children and Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm even if it couldn't see them. If you ever find yourself having to run away from a T-Rex, make sure you're running, not standing still, hoping it won't see you because you're just making its job easier. 
come on, come on, come on. We gotta get out of here. We gotta get out of here. T-Rex here is able to keep up. In fact, even outpace the, the Jeep as it's driving away. But most paleontologists think that, that T-Rex would have only been able to, to move at about 15 miles an hour, which is still a pretty fast clip for an animal that size, but it couldn't go uh, on the order of 30 or 40 miles an hour uh, to keep up with a Jeep. But again, uh, having T-Rex being able to run that fast just adds to the, the horror element of the movie. And again, you know, the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World movies are just simply not my cup of tea, but I can understand why people are so fascinated by these movies. And dinosaurs are remarkable creatures uh, that uh, lived on Earth, uh, gosh, 225 million years ago to about 65 million years ago, and uh, were really regal uh, creatures in their own right, and very much appreciate the, the, the movies. But if you are interested in, in learning more about an aspect of dinosaur paleontology that is uh, like science fiction come to life, uh, I would actually encourage you to take a look at my book, uh, Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth. Uh, this is a book where we talk about the recovery of soft tissue remnants from dinosaur remains and explore the question, what do the, does this discovery mean uh, for the scientific dates for the age of the Earth and the age of life on Earth? So until next time, remember the more that we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe, even if some of our favorite science fiction movies aren't accurate. Hello, Jeff Zwerink here. Welcome back to Science Faith Connection, the segment of our show where we look at important scientific and philosophical issues and see how they relate to the truth of Christianity. Today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Kenneth Samples, and we're going to be talking about the kind of world that needs to exist for science to work. Ken, good to have you here today. Hi, Jeff. Um, you know, nobody doubts the uh, efficacy of science. I mean, it just, you can study and understand so much stuff that's going on in our world. But it does strike me that science needs a particular kind of world. And these are things that are not necessarily studyable by science, if you will, but that are required. I know you've written quite a bit about that. So I just kind of want to throw the question open to you. What are the sorts of things that need to be true for science to work? Yeah, I think it's important. You know, science has certain assumptions, uh, starting points, if you will. Um, they assume that there's a real world out there Hindus don't necessarily agree with that. Mm -hmm. they, ha they believe that there are patterns and regularity that they'll find. So an experiment on Tuesday won't contradict an experiment on Friday, that it will mm -hmm. operate the same way. The scientist has to believe that their cognitive faculties and their sensory organs are, are pretty reliable mm. and that they can trust things like mathematics and logic, that they're they are true, that they are a true representation of, of what exists. So those are things that scientists assume as they begin the scientific process. So, I mean, there's part of that when I hear that. I mean, I agree, yeah, those things need to be true, but there's also kind of a, well, duh, of course it's that way type response I have to that. That, right. I mean, we look at the world that looks that way. So why wouldn't we just say that is the given? That's That's where we start. What's important... Why is that important to draw that distinction or point that out? Well, many worldviews don't make those assumptions. Uh, Hinduism, for example, there are, there are elements within Hinduism that would say the universe is God's body or, or the universe is, is an illusion. Hmm. 
Um, if the world is a brute reality, let's say we adopt naturalism, why should mathematics necessarily work? Why shouldn't we just assume a chaotic system rather than one that is uh, consistent? So not every worldview can justify those assumptions of science. So what's, uh, so if I get what's going on there, you can look throughout the history of the world and even in today's world and say, there are ways of looking at the world that wouldn't permit science to work. That's right. And there's an aspect to where, at least in the West, we live in a society where those assumptions or those starting points are grounded in our worldview. Um, so it, so in, in some sense, it seems obvious because of the worldview. What would you say to someone who's like a Buddhist or a Hindu who says, yeah, I, I agree that science works. What, what's the issue there? Why is that a problem? Well, um, I, I think everybody would agree, but if you adopt kind of an enlightened scientific view of the East, uh, their worldview isn't consistent with the idea that uh, the world is mathematical or, or the world mm. can be understood in terms of logic and reason. I, I think I would say this, Jeff, that there's a lot of beliefs in other worldviews that make science uh, that are incompatible with science. I like to say you need three things. You need the right kind of world, you need the right kind of people or scientists, and you need some kind of rational congruence between the two, the mm -hmm. network, if you will. Many of the worldviews don't have those readily networked ideas. Seems like if, uh, you know, so if you were to take science apart from the West. I mean, you know, you, you, we, we don't get to live in the world where the scientific enterprise doesn't work because that's where we are right now. It does seem to me that a society will inevitably move towards its worldview. So if a worldview doesn't have the pre, uh, presuppositions that science requires, does that likely mean that science will just kind of fade out? Or what, what, what do you think would happen in that sort of worldview? Well, I think in one sense, if we look at history, we ask, when did science begin? How did it begin? Well, 17th century, there is the scientific revolution. The, the historical context is Christian Europe. Uh, if we look in history, the ancient world, Chinese made contributions to math and science, uh, gunpowder, they had, mm -hmm. you know, they were engaged in their thinking, the Greeks and the Romans, even even Babylon, even the Muslim uh, civilization made contribution, but it was never able to actually come together, uh, let alone flourish. And I, I think one of the reasons why it didn't come into being in earlier centuries is they lack the philosophical framework to justify it. When you, when you look at uh, the science faith discussion, at least in the West over the last decade, a few decades, if you will, um, kind of naturalism and Christianity have been the the, the two opponents there, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, one of your statements that needs to be true for science to work is that we need to trust our faculties. And yeah. I'm just reminded of a conversation. Uh, we were talking about this, you know, the argument from reason, and you were explaining you need to trust your faculties, and if that doesn't work, science won't work. And I go, well, well, duh. I mean, science just works. You know, right. why do we need to worry about that? That one seems to be one that's harder to grasp. How? Why is that such an important issue? 
Well, um, I think to do science, we have to be able to trust our cognitive faculties and sensory organs. So my brain mind has to be able to give me truth about the world. I have to be able to measure, I have to be able to weigh, I have to be able to analyze. If my mind doesn't give me true beliefs about reality, I don't think science could, could ever begin. If I adopt a naturalistic worldview where there's no mind behind the universe, it's the product of a blind mechanistic accident, if you will, why should I necessarily trust a brain that evolved by accidental processes uh, in a theistic framework. If God has an infinite mind, he creates creatures with finite minds. There is a, a greater sense that I can trust that. So I think naturalism has a real hard time explaining human rationality, and human rationality is a core principle of science. But isn't even in the process of science, there's the, you know, you make, a, make an idea, you go out and test it against the real world. Why is it, it seems to me that science kind of has a built-in way of determining whether what we're seeing is correct or not. So why is it, why, and that seems to be built into science rather than a presupposition of science, or, or rather something science can test. How would you respond to that? Rebuttal. Well, I, I think scientists does kind of confirm every single day, hey, we can, we can trust math. Hey, we, we can trust that there are these laws of physics that are reliable. Um, but to do science, you have to first accept that. That is, that is, these are not things we've learned from nature. These are w principles of our worldview. These are principles of reality. If, if they weren't true, we couldn't be able to do that. But they are assumptions upon which science is built. They're not derived from science itself. I mean, how, do we, how could we conceivably know that, that all parts of the universe are regular, that, that have patterns? Uh, we operate with that assumption. It almost seems like, not. I mean, and, you know, this is not to be snarky, but if you're going to do science, you have to act like the world described by Christianity is correct. Doesn't mean you need to be a Christian, but you kind of have to act like it. I, I think that's right. I, I think in many respects, Jeff, science is the product of, a, of Christian capital, if you will. And because it's been a few centuries away from its origin, a lot of scientists are unaware of both the philosophical and historical connection to Christianity. Well, thanks, Ken. I really appreciate your comments. Sure. You know, science clearly has the ability to help us understand how this world works. And yet when we dig in and ask the question, what needs to be true for science to work, we find that Christianity is one of the, if not the only worldview that anchors all of those necessary assumptions. You know, I'd encourage you to go to reasons.org and check out Ken's blog on this. It's called, What Kind of World is Needed for Science to Work? It helps you understand what those assumptions are, how Christianity grounds them, and how we can use that important reality to tell others about who God is. We hope this episode has helped equip you to share your faith with compassion and confidence. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed Fuzz's um, reaction to Jurassic Park. It was I pretty cool. I loved everything he had to say. I, yeah. I do I do feel a little sad. He kind of debunked the movie a little bit for me. What? Yeah, I mean, he basically <laughs> just said it's not plausible. And ever since I was a little kid, I'm like, this is going to happen one day. I mean, but good, good storytelling has you suspend your disbelief. Right, so that's true. We've that's been doing that for decades, right? <laughs>
Yes. Also, I mean, there was a lot of other really good things to unpack. I liked yeah. the conversation I had with Fuzz on um, really talking about the birth of culture. Yes, I loved his point of saying that um, when we create, especially in arts and music, mm -hmm. um, it's a way to show that we're made in the image of God because he's the you know the ultimate creator. So when we turn around and use what we what we can do to create it's like showing his image in us we're like lowercase c creators right exactly yeah <laughs> well if you want to subscribe to this show we'd love to have you do that find us on facebook twitter and instagram we are at 2819 show and if you follow us on youtube give us some comments and let us know maybe some ideas for future episodes yeah that'd be great and for the audio version of the show you can find us on most major podcast services just search reasons to believe podcast See you next week. See ya.